welcome to Talking Research. I am Asmita and this is a podcast that features in-depth interviews with prominent academics and researchers who study sexual violence across its different manifestations. This conversation features an in-depth discussion of sexual violence, both in specific cases and more generally. If this is something that you find disturbing, please feel free to stop listening at any point. Today's guest is Karen Boyle. Karen is a professor in feminist media studies at the University of Strathclyde in Glasgow and in this conversation we're going to be talking about her very important work regarding how sexual assault trials are reported and how they can be reported responsibly. This conversation was recorded right after Karen in conjunction with Brenna Jesse at Rape Crisis Scotland released a list of guidelines about how media organizations and reporters can more responsibly cover sexual assault trials in Scotland. So we're going to be talking about that, but the link to the whole document is in the episode description. I highly encourage you to look at that. And if you like this episode, please share it, you know, <laughs> share it on your social media, subscribe to the podcast if you haven't already and leave a review. and let me know what you think but that's everything for me let's dive in hi karen welcome to talking research how are you doing great thanks thanks for having me oh you're very welcome and thank you for making the time but it's really great that you've made the time especially now especially in all the crazy times that we're in so thank you thank you again so to start how would you introduce yourself in a way that you like to be introduced So I am a professor of feminist media studies um and director of the applied gender studies program at the University of Strathclyde in Glasgow. I've been researching gender violence and representation for uh, my entire academic career and that spanned film, television, um also looking at news and more recently um work around social media as well so um that's sort of my core area of interest but i've got some quite broad interests in relation to feminist media studies as well so i think that's it yeah it's really interesting but how did you get into researching sexual violence specifically so the work i've done on sexual violence has been really within that broader framework of an interest in gender violence and representation so i've i've done work on sexual violence specifically but also um on domestic abuse and and other forms of violence and i got into it really because so i'd always been interested in i say always i'd been interested for a long time i guess in feminism as a student and i as a student i studied um english and politics so i was doing two in a way two quite different courses on the one hand i was i loved all the reading and thinking about questions of representation but when i was studying issues to do with um women's political representation and underrepresentation and feminist issues including sexual violence the representation stuff was more difficult for me to kind of square with that and i think i started looking at putting the two together because it was a way for me to continue to do you know what i was good at which was actually analyzing um texts be the literary texts or media texts but actually thinking about why that mattered in the world and to me one of the answers to why it matters in the world is because 
it shapes how we um or it can shape how we think about how we engage with issues that I think are politically important and obviously um all forms of men's violence against women for me fall within that and even the language we use to describe what we're talking about do we name men as perpetrators of the kind of violence we're talking about even that kind of thing um I think just really shows how important it is that we think about questions of representation when we're trying to challenge and change attitudes and behaviours that are um, abusive, discriminatory, unequal. Yeah, definitely. And I think going from there, uh, my next question was going to be, how influential is uh, media in, you know, how we think of media reporting specifically and how we how we perceive sexual violence or, uh, you know, in shaping opinions, specifically relating to those issues. Uh, And you've kind of, you know, said that it's the language that we use to talk about these things is highly influential. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think when, so some of the first work I did um, around violence and gender representation was around film. And it was at the time when there was quite a moral panic about representations of violence on screen. So it was around about the time of the James Bulger murder, when there was um, a lot of discussion about whether the two boys who murdered James Bulger, the two children who murdered James Bulger, had been influenced by horror films. And I mentioned that because one of the things that really started to interest me and worry me about that discussion, um, first of all, in that discussion specifically, there was actually no evidence the boys had seen the horror films, which the media seized on as kind of evidence of, um, of why they did what they did. But one of the things I started to notice was that these explanations for boys and men's violence um these explanations that it was the media that made them do it for instance were really only being reached for when it was young white boys and men who had committed violent acts and that started to worry me because I started to think what's at stake here and I, I did a piece of work this was um in the late 90s that actually looked at the media coverage of so-called copycat cases over a 10-year period and virtually all of them were men, young men and boys. So I started thinking about why are we talking about the media made them do it rather than looking at the question of gender here and how that comes into play. Because what all these perpetrators had in common, um, which was undisputable, was the fact that they were male. Um, the potential influence of the media was much more questionable. And I mention that because I think it's an important preface to saying that The research, I think, globally and over decades has shown that it's really, really difficult to think about the media in a sort of narrow cause and effect relationship to violence, that we see something in the media and then we do it in exactly the same way. And so when I'm thinking about the impact of the media, I'm not thinking about it in that direct, the media made me do it or the media made me do something. But rather, I think it's really about thinking about the media as part of 
a much broader social and cultural context. So Liz Kelly talks about this using a brilliant phrase, the conducive context. And I think that's much more how I would ask us to think about how the media influences our attitudes and behaviours. It's not that it directly causes something in a way that is divorced from the other um, influences in our lives, our families, our peer groups, um, the law, you know, all these other kinds of um, contexts. But that the media can be part of a context that is more or less conducive to certain kinds of attitudes about violence. So the conducive context, for instance, I think is a really useful way for thinking about things like our ideas about sexual violence. Is sexual violence something we take seriously or is it something that's a bit of a joke? Is it something that we see as violence or is it something as we see as sexual? And these kinds of questions, I think, help us think about just how the media is part of that much wider ecology of the way that we think about violence. And I think that's not, that's absolutely not to let the media off the hook here. I certainly wouldn't want to do that just because I'm saying, you know, X doesn't cause Y doesn't mean that we shouldn't think about it. And there's a couple of quotes that I've come back to again and again and again in my thinking about this. And one's from Helen Benedict, who wrote a book in the early 1990s about the representation of um, rape in particular in the US press. And she made the point early in the book that changes in representation don't only follow on from changes in reality, they can also lead the way. And that's always really stuck with me as a really positive way of thinking about why it's important that we change how we think about these things. Do we even have the language to talk about it? Can we change that language? And the other one that's really stuck in my mind um, was actually from a piece I read about um, the use of radio in the Rwandan genocide. Um, and the authors made the point um, radio was very influential in the Rwandan genocide. It played a very um, pivotal role. And they made the point that we have to be able, um, that we kill people, I think the exact quote is, we kill people with our minds before we kill them with our weapons. And it's really, really stuck with me that, as that sense that we have to be able to imagine things in particular ways. And the way we imagine those things, what behaviour is open to us, is shaped by lots of things. Sure, it's shaped by our families, it's shaped you know, by our peer groups, by legislation, um, by community norms. And the media is part of that. It shapes the way it's possible for us to think about behaviour, but also to think about other people are these people deserving of respect or are they deserving of violence and those kinds of um so so I suppose that's how I'd think about media influence um a long answer but I think I wouldn't think about effects but I'd think about the media as part of this wider ecology and it's really important to do so does the media make it more or less likely that someone is going to think that rape is an acceptable behavior for instance. Mm. 
Wow, that was so well explained. I I feel like my mind is expanding <laughs> as I talk. But no, yeah, we 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 don't want to let the media off the hook, and which is why we're having this conversation. Essentially, it's related to the guidelines that you've just released about how publications can report rape cases, sexual assault cases, or you know, cases related to sexual violence better so what is what is wrong with the media reporting i mean i know that's a really simple question essentially we can all think that's of, a really good you question know, <laughs> you know the, the the obvious one that comes to mind is that it's very sensationalist but really i mean what would be a better answer to that what is wrong with media reporting of sexual assault cases thanks so the um one thing i just say up front is that the guidelines that i've just produced with rape crisis scotland were specifically focusing on reporting of sexual assault trials and right. the reason we took that focus is there's many excellent um guidelines out there already which talk about how I'll come on to answer your question about what's wrong with the media um including for instance in scotland the um the guidelines produced by zero tolerance um which give journalists really easy quick reference points um for do's and don'ts about what makes for responsible reporting but obviously over the last 4 or 5 months there's been a number of really high profile cases um that have made it to court which of course is in itself unusual for sexual assault um that these cases make it to court and we were concerned partly because of things like the influence of the Harvey Weinstein trial which was so widely covered internationally but within a very different legal jurisdiction than in Scotland and and the guidelines we've produced speak to the Scottish legal system and the language used in Scotland so for instance we talk about um complainers rather than complainants because that's the legal terminal that's the terminology that's used in Scottish courts and i suppose we were worried that with other high profile cases coming up it was really important that we reflect on that in a way we don't let us coverage set the scene because it's a very different legal context and there are very um different restrictions on reporting including around the extent to which um complainers or complainants can um be named so so we really wanted to just remind ourselves of what good practice might look like in the specific context of sexual assault trials so there's already some really good stuff that's generally about sexual assault so that's just a a small point about that but in terms of what's wrong with media reporting of sexual assault cases um more broadly not just trials specifically um how long have you got um this this answer could take a while um okay i think maybe the first thing to say here is a really clear statement about why we need better reporting and why we need better reporting not just reporting actually fictional representations too why we need better understanding of media of gender and violence in the media is that survivors are always in the audience and not only survivors but also perpetrators and jury members so all these groups are watching and all these groups are learning how the world will treat their experiences if they come forward so it's really important that 
that that's just at the forefront or should be at the forefront of our minds. Um, what's wrong with media reporting partly is that it doesn't keep that in mind and as you've suggested is is often very sensational and presenting all kinds of gender-based violence but sexual violence in particular as something really unusual that happens to someone else rather than you know in a very extreme crime rather than um what we know from decades of feminist research and activism in this field is that actually sexual assault is depressingly commonplace. So one of the things that's problematic is that if we think about news media specifically, obviously newsworthiness is a key element and newsworthiness by definition is something that's unusual. So we're much more likely to have extreme and unusual cases focused on. And I think one of the key things the media can do to remedy this, I'm not saying we can ever change that because we can't, because we don't want to read about the same things every single day. That's not the news media. That's not how the news media operate. Um, But they can balance that by ensuring that we do understand that, for instance, when they're reporting on a high-profile sexual assault criminal case, what percentage of cases ever make it to trial in the first place. So there's ways of giving that content even when reporting on the extreme and the unusual. So the extreme and the unusual is one of the things that's wrong with media reporting, but it's also probably the least easy to fix. We're always going to have a focus on the extreme and the unusual. So the question is, how can we mitigate that and tell other kinds of stories too? Bringing in that contextual knowledge, but also looking at where the more everyday experiences might be told, whether that's through features, interviews, documentary, um, other forms rather than simply news. Soap operas are fantastic, actually. Um, often at telling these stories not always there's been some corkers over the years but there's been some that have been really important actually in opening up conversations in a way that actually is very difficult to do in the news I'm thinking for instance of um, the radio soap the archers um, had a story a couple of years ago now on coercive control and I think it was really it really helped open up a discussion about what does domestic abuse look and feel like when it's not a punch and a bruise and something that's visible and it's something that takes place over weeks, months, decades, which of course soaps do. They take place over weeks, months, decades. News is a daily thing. It's different. So that's one of the more challenging things to tackle. Um, but in terms of some of the other things that, have, that are wrong, um, victim blaming is obviously a huge problem and that can be explicit what was she wearing what was she drinking being very very common um sort of victim blaming strategies particularly in relation to sexual violence we see things like um you know what was her sexual history and although there are restrictions on obviously um, what can be admitted into evidence in court news media often allude to things without maybe being explicit in that sense um 
other kinds of victim blaming. Um, again, a number of years ago now, I did a study where I looked at all sexual assault reporting in one British newspaper over a one-year period. I looked at the Daily Mail. Um, and one of the things that surprised me, and I've been really conscious of ever since, is that even when stories seem to be sympathetic to a victim, so when the victim has done everything right, if you like, when they, you know, were assaulted by someone they didn't know, when they weren't out at night, you know, all those kind of cliches about what makes a, a good victim, even when the victim seems to have done everything right, there's a way of telling these stories in the news that still keeps us focused on her behaviour. So it's what was she doing on the night it happened? As though by looking at that behaviour, we can understand it. And I'll just give you an example of that. One of the stories that really stuck in my mind was of an elderly woman. Um, it focused on an el- it was a news story, but an elderly woman who had been raped in a churchyard. Um, a horrific story. But what the story did was talk about where she'd been beforehand, the route she'd taken through the churchyard, um, and you know things like what she'd had for a dinner, then where she, who she'd spoken to, where she'd walked. And so by telling the story in this way, it really encouraged us to think about all the points where she could have done something differently. If only she had stayed with her friend for another five minutes. If only she had taken the longer route and not gone through the churchyard. If only she had um, accepted a lift. You know, those kinds of things that encouraged us to think like that. And bear in mind, this is in a story where they were really clear she had been raped. They weren't doubting the fact. And I think that's really troubling because it stops us from asking the question, actually, or, or or thinking about, actually, what would have stopped this happening wasn't her being in the churchyard but the man who raped her not raping her that's what would have stopped it happening and if she hadn't walked through the churchyard he would have raped someone else or he may well have raped someone else and so we need to be turning the focus on men's decisions and not women's decisions so that so I think victim blaming can be explicit a kind of she was asking for it but it can also be implicit in the way I was just talking about, where actually we focus on her behaviour. We assume that we can understand why sexual violence happens by looking at the behaviour of the people it happens to. And we can't. So victim blaming. What else do they get wrong? Um, maybe just one more, which is the way they represent perpetrators. And I think that comes back to the earlier point I made about um, the assumption that for it to be newsworthy, it needs to be extreme. And one part of that is that if they're to be understood as credible perpetrators, so yes, we believe that this man could have done this, then there's still an overwhelming tendency to represent the men as monsters of one kind or another. So sexual violence isn't something that's done by ordinary men it's done by men who are monstrous and one of the problems with that is it really really tips over into victim blaming because the perpetrators are so obviously monstrous 
then why on earth didn't she know? Why did why did she go to his hotel room? Those kind of questions. There's loads more I could say about what's wrong, but maybe we'll leave it there for now. Yeah, I mean, this reminds me of uh, this this blog piece that Deborah Cameron, the linguist, wrote about. I don't know if you saw this. This was a couple of years ago. There was a case in Arizona where uh, a woman in a some sort of a care facility. She'd been in coma for years, and she was suddenly found in a state of labor. Uh, yeah. Like she was giving birth, and uh, you know, obviously there was no way in which she could have become pregnant through consensual sex. And uh, even that case, how it was reported by news publications, there was extensive use of the word allegedly, like the a woman allegedly raped. I mean, is in even in the most obvious case that allegation element, that uh, doubt element, or that this is not proven yet element is still emphasized quite a bit that's yeah, really fascinating I, mean, I would say to to any listeners who don't know deborah cameron's blog seek it out um language yeah. a feminist guide it's absolutely fantastic and she deals with a lot of these cases um you, you know a lot of issues to do with language gender and violence um, quite regularly and yes i remember that case i mean alleged is a really tricky one because sometimes the word alleged excuse me has to be used because of legal proceedings that wasn't the case in the case you're talking about they were talking about it as an alleged rape when clearly it was a rape that wasn't alleged what may or may not have been alleged was who was responsible for the rape um you know until that goes to criminal court until someone's proven guilty we'd have to use alleged in in that context um but yeah um that is a really good example i mean clearly that wasn't an alleged rape you know yeah and even with that distinction between knowing uh that that wasn't a rape trial so you you know that distinction between having to use that legal language legal terminology versus you know just using i don't even know common sense in a sense absolutely and you know the the example you've given there a bit like um the example of the woman in the churchyard I mentioned is one where the women are, if you like, perfect victims, quote unquote, as yeah. in they didn't do anything wrong. And and clearly, just to be absolutely clear, I'm not saying any woman who's sexually assaulted does something wrong. But in terms of the media narrative of looking for clues in women's behaviour, um, you know, if a woman is drinking, if a woman is wearing particular kinds of clothing, if she's in a particular place or at a particular time these things are all used to blame women but even when those victim blaming narratives aren't available we still end up coming back to some of these points and I suppose just one thing to add to that Mm -hmm. in terms of what the media get wrong is one of the things that's problematic about so much media coverage is that there's a very selective focus on which victims matter so in news reporting so for instance um victims are much more likely to be sympathetically portrayed if they're very young or very old um if like the woman you mentioned um there was no possibility of consent um obviously through you know you know illness and um in the case you're talking about 
um, women are also much more likely to be sympathetically portrayed if they're white. Um, and if they're attacked by someone who's not of the same racial group as them. So there's a lot of stereotypes around who the right kind of victim is, and likewise who the right kind of perpetrator is, um, that, that need to be unpacked. Yeah, and we've seen a lot of this, all of what we're talking about, we've seen a huge, huge increase in reporting on sexual assault cases generally but also specifically like you said sexual assault trials and more high profile sexual assault trials you know pretty much across the world since me too broke uh in about you know was it late 2017 i mean which is which is great because in a sense it created you know it's been such a big movement and it's changed so many things in a sense but and we've seen a lot of increased coverage of of uh, of of rape cases and something that wasn't how you know there's been an increase in reportings of rape and there's been all of that but do you think that uh some of the mainstream coverage of of me too or or you know cases related to me too have been counterproductive to the cause of you know the broader cause of prevent preventing sexual violence but also more specifically have they done a disservice to um survivors that's a really good and complicated question um to answer i mean i think the first thing i'd say about me too um so the hashtag me too which is what i'll talk about first um that was tweeted first by um alicia milano Uh, about 10 days I think it was after the Weinstein story broke in the New York Times and she asked women um, who had been sexually I'm going to try and get the word right here sexually assaulted or harassed to put me too um, in their tweet hashtag me too and I think what's really significant and the most positive shift around me too has actually been that it's opened up a very public space for discussions of sexual assault that are not necessarily rape. So it's actually allowed us to talk about, again, to use an idea from Liz Kelly, to talk about the continuum of sexual violence. So a lot of people who tweeted Me Too or, or, you know, used Me Too on Facebook or on other social media platforms did so not to talk about rape, but to talk about other forms of sexual harassment and abuse. And that really opened out the conversation. So I think that was really, really important in making visible the non-newsworthy, mundane realities of women's lives in particular, but also for some groups of men as well. And I think um, that was really, really... So that's the positive. Um, In terms of whether it's been counterproductive, I really like that you distinguish there between has the media coverage been counterproductive? And I would definitely distinguish between what individuals and indeed feminist groups might have done with Me Too and how the mainstream media have reported on Me Too as a hashtag. And one of the critiques I've often seen levelled at Me Too is that it focuses on celebrity predominantly white predominantly u.s women 
And that is certainly true if what you look at is the mainstream media coverage. It's not true if you look at who has used the hashtag MeToo in which parts of the world, in which industries they work in, and which movements and organisations have got behind MeToo, many of whom work with people who are far more marginalised than, say, Hollywood actors might be. So I think that's a really important distinction between MeToo as a hashtag and and MeToo as a movement, which I'll talk about in a minute, um, and then what the mainstream media have focused on, which has been the celebrities, um, you know, quite a narrow range of cases. Um, I think one of the other problems with how the mainstream media have covered the hashtag MeToo is that it's been quite ahistorical. So there's been this sense that suddenly in 2017, women everywhere started talking about sexual harassment and abuse in a way that had never happened before. And whilst in some ways the scale of Me Too absolutely was unprecedented in terms of the number of women speaking out, the different parts of the world in which women were speaking out fairly simultaneously. Um, so where the volume was unprecedented, the fact of women speaking out and doing so collectively was not new. Um, women have been speaking out about sexual violence and abuse um, and harassment for decades, if not longer. And actually, even in the Weinstein case, which of course um, sort of kicked a lot of this off, Many of the women who first spoke on the record to reporters like Jodie Cantor and Megan Toy or um, Ronan Farrow actually commented that they had been speaking out about Weinstein for years, in some case for decades. Um, Ashley Judd, for instance, said that she'd been speaking out about Harvey Weinstein since it happened. And I think that's a really cautionary tale because it shows that what shifted wasn't women that wasn't that women spoke out, but that someone listened. And I think that's a really, really important distinction because women have been speaking out about this stuff for a long, long time. Um, so the kind of, in a way, the I guess you could say almost the fetishization of speaking out. A silence breaking as an end in itself is something I've been a bit worried about with mainstream coverage because I think one of the other problems with that is it endlessly puts the responsibility for ending sexual violence back on survivors. It's the responsibility of survivors to speak out. It's the responsibility of survivors to lead the movements. And survivors have done incredible work and I would never take away from that. I also don't think they should be obligated to do that work. That work has to be at a structural and societal level. Of yeah. course, it should never take place without the voices of survivors, but survivors don't owe us their stories. And I think that's something we need to be kind of really clear about. When survivors want to speak out, we should listen. We shouldn't require they tell us their stories. Um, so, yeah, I think that was one. Of, there was a point where practically every woman in public life um, would be asked if she had a Me Too story and it didn't matter what she was talking about. I saw examples in the Scottish press of politicians being asked had they had a Me Too experience when they were actually talking about something else entirely. That's really intrusive, really intrusive reporting. And it assumes that women in public life owe their stories, which I think we need to be really careful with. So that's been some of the limitations of it, I think. Yeah, uh, and in your book, Me Too 
Weinstein and feminism, you you know, you've really wonderfully sort of explained and dissected all of this. So I really recommend it to everyone listening. It's it's a and it's just such a such an easy read Thank as you. well. I mean, it does really doesn't feel like you're reading a heavy academic text, although it is quite academic. But it's it's yeah. so, so brilliantly, you know. I think that's partly why I understand all of these concepts so well now. Because I've recently read it. Um, oh, thank you. I mean, one thing I would say, actually, um, mm-hmm. one thing I would say, because I mentioned and I just want to come back to, and I do talk about quite a lot in the book, is to distinguish between the hashtag Me Too, started by Alicia yes. Milano, and Me Too as a movement started by African-American activist Tarana Burke more than a decade before the hashtag went viral. And that work in itself built on work that had been going on for decades before that. And that's one of the problems with the ahistoricization, I'm not sure that's a word, but the ahistorical nature of reporting is that it writes out these long, long legacies of phenomenally important activist work against men's violence against women um, offline as well as online. And we need to not lose sight of that. And Tarana Burke, um, who has become a much more globally known figure as a result of the hashtag MeToo, has made a really crucial distinction between the hashtag and what she calls the work. So the hashtag often is emotional labour for, for people and putting it out there and telling their stories, but telling their stories isn't an end in itself in terms of telling stories in and of itself will not end men's violence against women. So Tarana Burke's asking us what happens next? What's our responsibility to take this forward and how do we do that? So I think that's a brilliant concept to keep in mind that, you know, ending men's violence against women is work. It's not only speech. And it has to be tied up with grassroots activism and with organisations that support survivors and all of that. Um, Absolutely. And sorry, just one other thing I'd say on that, actually, in terms of what the media get wrong, is how rarely they use feminist expertise to understand these news stories. And I found that when I looked at Weinstein and I found it when I looked in previous work I did in the UK on the reporting of the Jimmy Savile case, is that there is very little acknowledgement that there are organisations in the UK with more than four decades worth of experience in working and challenging these forms of violence that could and should be part of these stories, but they're typically not. Thanks for reminding me. Definitely. And and some of the other things you'd point out in the book are that, you know, the way in which it's in in mainstream coverage and sort of tabloids and in news news reporting and, you know, read the the, the sort of stuff that's most watched and most viewed and most bought in the news is talked about all the, you know, the, the fights within the so-called fights within feminist circles. So, so people disagreeing on Me Too and then specific cases such as Weinstein. So it's been very focused on elements that generate uh, that sort of buzz as yeah. opposed to looking at the effects on survivors and, you know, what happens after or you know any any more nuanced coverage that can further you know that can aid me to aid hashtag me to into becoming that global movement so 
that's all been really really uh really inspiring and really insightful to read but i mean i do want to ask last question about this is do you think um i mean we have all these guidelines which is amazing you know and it's amazing work to have these guidelines out but how do we make publications follow them when they are more inclined to follow i mean not all publications are more inclined to follow commercial considerations first but it does appear that 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 does tend to be the interest of you know mainstream publications reporting on sexual violence in, especially in cases like rape trials where you know they are vying between publications to get more views or i don't even know what the commercial considerations are but how do we make sure that they follow these guidelines oh that's the million dollar question <laughs> um i i mean in some contexts there are push for there are pushing uh, different organizations have pushed for certain kinds of guidelines to become mandatory i'm not sure we're going to see that happen but i think there's a few ways we can all of us actually um be involved in shifting this discourse and making and telling different stories so i suppose just in terms of the guidelines themselves um one of the things i'd say is that the guidelines um that seem to have been taken on more broadly by media organizations are often those that really understand the conditions that journalists work under so we've got to accept that a lot of journalists who produce what we might think of as problematic reporting are not doing so out of malice they're doing so yeah. under pressures of time and because they're following the way these stories have been told for a long long time so shifting that narrative is partly about journalism education both in education contexts like colleges and universities but also in vocational settings going in and talking to newsrooms and so on and feminist organizations do do some absolutely great work on this already i've already mentioned zero tolerance um yeah. and a number of years ago they did a really great piece of work with scottish women's aid called 1000 words which was to tackle the way that press reports but also television reports would consistently use stock images of women in reporting of domestic abuse cases which showed women um with a black eye or you know showed showed women being injured in and a focus on the injury and um Brenna Jessie who was at Scottish Women's Aid at the time and is is now with Rape Crisis Scotland has spoken really powerfully about how that campaign came about and it came about because she'd seen reports on the new coercive control legislation which was being brought in which was precisely to recognize that domestic abuse was not all physical and could take other forms such as emotional and financial um abuse and yeah. yet the article um actually good article had been illustrated with an image of a woman with a black eye and she phoned up the journalist and said this is a problem and the journalist responded by saying you're right are there other stock images we can use mm. and she said i'll find out and what she found out was there wasn't So Zero Tolerance and Scottish Women's Aid created new stock images which are free to use and download from their websites if anyone listening to this is involved in putting together these kind of stories. Um and that's been one thing that's been one intervention that's been really really successful because it's giving it to the media on a plate it's there you know you don't have to use these stock images um of women with black eyes 
because here's a whole other set of images that we've produced that tell a different story. So really acknowledging that context, the difficult context in which much contemporary journalism takes place is really important. And the guidelines we've produced, as well as the ones produced by Zero Tolerance, are also available in really straightforward kind of lists of do's and don'ts that can be referred to really quickly. And we're hoping to get them out into journalism education as well. Um, It's also important to open up conversations like this, you know, where we actually talk about and think about and share our learning on this. Um, And again, we've got a free course running online at the moment um, with the platform Future Learn um, called Gender Representation in the Media. And we do do a blog on violence within that course. And any listeners who are interested are welcome to sign up for that free course. But one thing we can all do, so we're all part of this because we all consume the media in one form or another. So one thing we can all do is, in a sense, make it worth journalists and media organisations, make it worth their while to get it right. When you see someone do a good job, really amplify it, tweet it, share it on social media, you know, congratulate them for good reporting. Because we're very quick sometimes to highlight the negative, and we have to be because there's real, real problems. But when organisations, when media organisations get it right, let's tell them they get it right. And when they get it wrong, it's worth calling it out, and particularly on social media, particularly to do with headlines, because often organisations will go in and change them in response to pressure. So it's understanding we can all be part of shifting that conversation, I think, is really, really important as well. Wow, that's yeah. really, really great advice. I don't know if we have time for one final question. Sure. Um, I was just going to ask, I mean, all of this work, it it can't be easy to, you know, read about sexual violence and how it's portrayed constantly. And I'm just wondering if this is emotionally challenging for you and how you manage your emotional well-being with your work and your activism. Thanks for asking that. I think that's a really really important question and in my field so I'm kind of in media studies it's a question we don't ask so I think sociologists ask it um they ask what's the impact of researching this on the researcher but in media studies we're not as good at asking that and we need to be um because yes we need to think about how do we protect ourselves doing this kind of research personally because I'm researching representation I'm often able to keep it a little bit at a distance, but there's no doubt that it becomes very draining, particularly actually some of the social media work because it's so infuriating. Um, And I think it's just really important to plan your work knowing that that's the case, to make sure that I think the most important resource any researcher who does work that's emotionally challenging can have is their support network, whether that is a support network of fellow researchers that you can talk through your ideas with, whether it's family and friends. We need we need those sounding boards and we also need, um, in a sense, sounding off boards where we can just let go of some of the anger. For me, a lot of it's anger um, and frustration that I'll feel, feel when reading stuff, as well as obviously being um, upset by many of the accounts that I read from from survivors. Um, so I think it really is important to acknowledge that, 
to build that into the way you plan your research. And for me personally, I've also always, although gender violence and representation has been the main thing I've done for most of my academic career, I've also always had other research projects sort of running alongside that can provide a bit of relief in a sense when I need to think about something else for a while. Um, and I think that's really valuable to do. So I've got a half-written paper somewhere on a documentary about Wham in China. So at some point I'll get back to that. Wham, the pop group that is. So at some point I'll get back to that. But I think it is quite useful to have other, you know, other projects that you can turn to when you need to switch off from this. And also to recognise when actually you need to take, when it's not productive for you to be doing this. I've I, In my career, I've done quite a lot of work on debates about pornography and I've taken the last five or six years off that because, yeah, it, uh, yeah, I, I was kind of burnt out with that work. So I think it's important to, to recognise when you get to that point. Yeah, really brilliant work as well on pornography. Some of the papers I've read, I'm just like, wow, like, I don't know where you, I don't know where, I really, I mean, your brain is just so fascinating. I don't know if that's, if that's, uh, that's an appropriate thing to say, but it's, I mean, it's just really brilliant work. I'm so grateful for it. And thank you so much for oh, talking to you. me as well. I mean, you're so busy and thanks for making the time. And I'll put the links to all the you know to your course and the guidelines and uh, the book as well in the episode description so that that would be brilliant can. i can send you those as well just to make sure you have them brilliant Great. thank you so much thank you Karen. Well, thank you thanks for the opportunity it's it's really nice to actually get the opportunity to reflect on what you do and why you do it um yeah. in a kind of long form like this so thank you for the work you do on the podcast yeah. and for making this work available i think it's really, really valuable. So thank you.